Well, good morning. It is great to see everybody. I know I was looking around the room earlier, and I know we've got some guests with us. So if you are here for the very first time, um, it is exciting to have you with us. Thanks for coming to check us out in this new place. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill. Um, and I would love, if I didn't meet you on your way in, would love to have the opportunity to meet you on your way out this morning and answer any questions that you have about anything that you hear in the service today, or um, if you have questions about the church, would love to be able to, to answer those questions as well. Um, but if you are a guest with us today, the easiest way um, to connect with us, because we want to find out how to uh, serve you and your family, is to text the word WELCOME to 817-755-1668. It's the number on the screen back there. It's also on um, a sticker on a seat back somewhere close to you, um, so you can text us there, and then we'll send you a little uh, kind of a digital guest card, if you will, just so we can get your information. We're not going to do anything weird, but um, you'll just get an email from me tomorrow and a text later this week, and again, we just want to find out how um, we could potentially be an encouragement to you and your family, um, because we are glad that you're here. You know, when you walk through, uh, walk into a new church for the very first time, you may be wondering, like, what's this place about, or what should I expect in coming um, here And here is what my hope would be for you, that by being a part of our church, that this would be a place to help your faith come alive. And what I mean by that is that like, even maybe you're not really sure yet about what you believe, but hopefully you come to a, a, a clear sense of what you believe, that you know Jesus is um, our Savior and our Lord, um, and then that through that, your, your faith becomes a determining factor for everything that you do in life. It's really easy to just kind of go through the motions a little bit. We're going to talk some about that today. Um, and we don't want to do that. Um, but we want to make sure that our faith is alive in our lives and is guiding everything that we do so that we have um, the proper perspective and then are able to enjoy the life that God has for us. So hopefully that's what you guys um, all and all of us, including myself, will experience as a result of being a, here and a, a, a part of the table. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, thanks so much um, for your love and your grace and your goodness to us. Um, God, as we were singing, just reminded of how, in spite of our faults and our failures, you continue to pursue us with your love. And, and I pray, Father, that in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through this morning, that you would meet us right where we are. Uh, God, that you would challenge us in some areas if we need to make some changes, that you would encourage us um, if we've lost hope. Um, but God, we are here because of your love for us, because of the fact that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who laid down his life for us so that we can be brought into a relationship with you. So we are here because of you and we are here for you. And so I pray through the work of your Holy Spirit that you would be our teacher and our guide today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this is week two of our Christmas series called Joyful Anticipation. And if you were with us last week, you might remember I mentioned very briefly at the beginning of uh, the message, the movie The Polar Express, which I think for a lot of us in our families has kind of become a, a, a traditional, like we watch it every year kind of movie. You know, it's whenever it's on or you know, we find it on our streaming service of choice, uh, we turn it on, we get the hot chocolate, we sit down together as a family and we watch the movie. And so last week I mentioned what happened at the very end of the movie with the bell from Santa's sleigh. And the only way to hear the the sound of the bell is to still believe in the magic of Christmas, but the little boy's you know, parents, they had lost that belief long ago, and so they couldn't hear the bell ring. 
I think that the, the Polar Express, it's really, it's a fun movie. It's a great story. It's you know, got exciting um, aspects to it and everything. But yet at the same time, there is one part um, and one character that are just like super sad. And I know if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's a little boy who is from the other side of the tracks. And you remember the, the, the scene is the, the kids all get on the train headed to the North Pole. Most of them are just eagerly anticipating what, being able to see Santa and ask him you know, for whatever they wanted for Christmas. They're talking about all of these different things. And then there's this one little boy who sneaks off to the back of the train alone. And then in song, the song called When Christmas Comes to Town, he describes why he just felt uncomfortable in that moment. And so he talks about how when Christmas comes to town, so at Christmas, like Santa never seems to come his way, like skips him for some reason. And so from his life experience, what he has learned is that there is no reason to anticipate anything good ever happening. And just like in that moment, it's like, man, like this is horribly sad. Growing up, my mom used to say that bad things happen in threes. And I think when she said that, really what she was often referring to was like unexpected expenses that you would have. Like something would break, you'd have to fix it, and you weren't planning on that, and so you'd have to spend that money. And like it wasn't one thing in isolation, it was always something that happened in threes. And, and so for, throughout my entire life, when something like that has happened, it's always like, okay, that's the first one. What are the other two that are coming right after it as well? And so I don't, it's crazy to me. I don't know if you've experienced this. I swear that that statement is true. I don't know how, I don't know why, but it seems like it is. And we experienced it about six weeks ago. So I came home one evening, uh, I think I was out with Nathan, our, our son somewhere, and our daughter Caroline was in the shower in her bathroom. She was finishing up, and she came out, and she said, I can't get the water off all the way. And so you got to know this about me, like I would like to, to consider myself being somewhat handy around the house, like I want to be able to fix things. The last thing I want to do is spend, you know, $500 to call a repairman to turn one screw, because like I'm pretty sure I could do that, and that's happened to me before, and so I don't like to do that. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll go in and I'll, I'll fix this problem, whatever it is. So I go into the bathroom, check out the shower, and I mess around with it for a little while. And as a result of my incredible skill to fix things, what was once a small trickle of water has now become the shower on full blast with no way at all to turn it off. So kind of to make a long story short, finally decided that I should call a plumber at 10 o'clock at night, because emergency hours, all of the added expenses, and eventually around 11 o'clock, everything was finally back to normal. Bad thing number one. About a week later, I was actually driving. It's a Wednesday evening, so I was driving to church um, to do our stuff here, and I got a call from my wife, Mandy. She said, I have a flat tire. What should I do? And so I'm thinking to myself, like, really quickly, we don't have AAA or anything like that, again, because why pay for somebody to do something that I think I can do? And so I think to myself, okay, like, what, are we gonna, what am I going to do? Because I'm on my way to church. I was like, well, I'll just cancel what I'm doing. I'll come back. I'll change the tire. Not that big of a deal. Now, you got to know this, too. My favorite Christmas movie is A Christmas Story. 
And there's a scene in the Christmas story where the dad gets out and changes his tire, like he's, you know, tells mom, hey, like, tie me on this, right? And so there's a sense in which, like, this is now me. I'm channeling my inner a Christmas story scene, like, how fast can I get this done? And I was really proud of myself. It was about 15 minutes, got it off, you know, old tire off, spare on, all of that, no problems whatsoever, drove to discount tire to get the tire fixed, got there, and guess what? It's not repairable. So, four new tires later, the reason being is because I can't stand, like, having one that's different from the other one, so I just went ahead and bought all four, so part of that's my fault, but, like, hey, that's bad thing number two. If there was a bad thing number three, I don't know what it is, because I got to the point where I stopped looking. I didn't want to experience it anymore. You ever been there, though? Now, what we experienced was, like, I mean, it was a minor inconvenience in the scope of life, and we had the money to cover all of those things and stuff like that. I mean, it was, like, really simple, but I know some of you guys are going through some stuff, and when you get there, it feels like, man, that's one bad thing after another after another, and it feels like nothing good is ever going to happen again. This series, Joyful Anticipation, and the... the Christmas season, the Advent season is all about anticipation. It's about the anticipation of the coming of the birth of Jesus, celebrating the birth of Jesus, and all the the significance of what his life means for us. And in those moments where all that you see around you is bad, we can talk about anticipation and talk about something better coming, but you're not thinking anticipation, you're thinking survival. Not anticipating something good coming, but thinking to yourself, how do I just make it through all of this stuff that's happening? Let me tell you this, if that's where you are today, let me encourage you, don't give up hope just yet. Because even in those moments when all that you see around you is bad, there's still a reason for anticipation. And so we're going to talk about this morning Last week, we started our series by talking about the promise of a Messiah coming, a Savior coming, that happened right after the fall. God promised Adam and Eve one day a Savior was going to come who was going to make everything right. Well, today, we're going to fast forward several hundred years and look at another promise of the coming of the Messiah found in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 17. So here's the easiest way to find Isaiah. If you find the book of Psalms, which generally speaking is kind of towards the middle of your Bible, flip over to the right um, and you'll find the book of Isaiah that way. So this is a promise of the coming of the Messiah. We're going to talk about that promise just a little bit, but really what I want to do is this was a promise that was given to King Ahaz. And we're actually going to look more at his life and what we can learn from his life than actually the the prophecy, which is one that's relatively well known because it's the prophecy of the virgin birth. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. So we're going to talk about that prophecy, but really what I want to do is talk about the life of King Ahaz. So let me read this section for us. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen or um, weekly commercial for the Uversion live event. Um, if, if you are a Uversion Bible app user, you can follow along there. Okay, Isaiah 7, starting verse 1. This took place during the reign of Ahaz. You know, one of the things that I love about reading from the Old Testament is the Hebrew names, which are so very much like the names 
um, that we have today, or not at all. So who knows how to pronounce them? This took place during the reign of King Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Aram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son, Sher Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road of the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plotted harm against you. They say, let us go up to Judah and terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can instill Tabil's son as king in it. But this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief of Aram is Damascus. The chief city of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will, will be too shattered to be a people. The chief of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief city of Samaria is the, is the son of Remaliah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Then the Lord God spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you and your people and your father's house, such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. Now, before I talk about all that's happening in this passage, I'm going to bore you to death and give you a little bit of history. Um, I don't mean to do that, but hang with me for 90 seconds, because if you don't understand the history, you don't really understand what's happening in that section. So the nation of Israel was united kingdom, under David and his son Solomon. And it was, at the very least, a regional power at the time under those two kings. But neither of them were perfect. In fact, Solomon, we find out he had many, many wives, which was against God's desire for him. And as a result of his sin, God said the kingdom would be divided. So Israel was once unified, but was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. And so what we find at the beginning of our passage is King Ahaz is who we're primarily looking at today. He is the kingdom or the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And during this time, the, the nations of the region, there's all kinds of fear and trepidation. And the reason being is that there is a new world empire that is coming on stage known as the Assyrians. They were literally conquering the world. Nobody could stand against their war machine. 
And so because of that lingering threat that was out there, the, the kingdoms of the region around Israel, they were creating all these different alliances to try to figure out how to gain as much power for themselves as they could to potentially stand against Assyria as long as possible. And so what we find is that the northern kingdom, Israel, is joined with some other nations, and now they are threatening Ahaz and the nation of Judah. And so that's kind of where we picked up things at the beginning of chapter 7. So what I want to do is give you three life lessons that we learn from King Ahaz. The first lesson is this. There is no reason to be an Eeyore. There's no reason to be an Eeyore. I don't know if you remember watching uh, Winnie the Pooh either as a kid or with your kids, but there's a sense in which all of the characters in Winnie the Pooh represent different personalities. I don't necessarily know which personality fits me the best. I know for sure which one does not fit me at all. And I also know which one I do not want to be. I know I am not Tigger. Tigger is the one that bounces around, full of energy, and all he wants to do is play games all the time, right? That's not me. I am not Tigger, and I also don't want to be Eeyore. Eeyore's the donkey who regardless of what is happening, he sees the negative in everything. The reason I say I don't want to be Eeyore is that my fear is I often end up in that role, and I don't like it. But what we learn from Ahaz is there's no reason to be an Eeyore. Now, in this passage that we're looking at today, at least in this circumstance, I don't know what his life was like as a whole, but at least in this circumstance, he is an Eeyore. Because all he sees is bad. Like as he looks out at the world, he sees bad things all the time. He's got this threat of these nations coming against him. And he's scared to death about that. And then there's this lingering threat of Assyria out there somewhere. And so he sees all of these bad things around him. And at this point, he's beginning to think, well, maybe the best thing that we can do is actually to create an alliance with Assyria. This world power that's known for all this wickedness and evil and all of that, because he's thinking to himself, well, that at least might scare off Israel and these other nations from our area that are coming, and, and maybe we'll be able to survive as long as we can, because that's in his mind, that's what he's thinking. Like, how do we stay as a nation as long as we possibly can? And in the midst of that, he misses God's plan. There was no reason to be an Eeyore. God said, listen, that stuff's not going to happen. But he got stuck, and, and as he looked out, all that he saw was bad, and there was no good that was ever going to come. But there's no reason to be an Eeyore. But it's easy to get stuck there. Because if, if you're in one of those seasons of life where you look and all you see is bad, you don't anticipate anything good ever coming, and so what happens is when you're faced with decisions, you begin to end up thinking, okay, what's the least worst option? And that's what you end up choosing. And I know that sounds really weird. Like, how do you have the least worst option? Here's what I mean by that. You look at the, the options that are in front of you in a decision, and you think to yourself, man, that's the worst, and that's the worst, Gosh, and that's the worst too. So which of these three options is the least worst option? And when all you see is bad, that's where you end up, with the least worst option. And so in Ahaz's mind, he's tempted to think, well, maybe the least worst option is to align with Syria. And if he did that, it might have meant 
longer reign for him. It might have protected the people of Judah for a little while longer, but it wasn't what God wanted because God still had a plan. There's no reason to be an Eeyore, even in the midst of when you look out and all that you see is bad. Don't shortcut God's plan and choose the least worst option. But again, it's easy to get stuck there. In the room this morning, we've got some of our students. We've got uh, some younger adults who aren't married yet, and you'd like to be married one day. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, that desire. I used to think, you know, I grew up in church and stuff like that, and I'd hear, like, we need to be content. And I've wanted to be content in singleness and all of that, but yet I had this desire to be married. And I think that's a God-given desire for us, honestly. So it's, there's nothing wrong with that desire. But with that desire comes a lot of cultural pressure cultural pressure to be in a relationship. And so what we're tempted to do in those moments because of that cultural pressure is to like look at the options that are in front of us and choose the least worst option rather than waiting and trusting the plan of God and finding that right person that God would have for us. Moms and dads, I know when you get home from work after a stressful day, it's hard. You're stressed out. Kids are going crazy. It's easy to fall into the trap of choosing the least worst option and throw their devices at them day after day after day. And I know it's so easy to get there, and you think when, when, there's, when you don't see anything good, it's really easy to just think, well, it's not even, it doesn't even matter. Rather than doing what God would have us to do, which is leaning in and investing in our kids, we take that least worst option. It's kind of the easy way out for us sometimes. But in those moments where all we see is bad, don't lean away from faith. I would encourage us to lean in and trust God and trust the fact that God still has a plan. Because Ahaz, as he looked out and he sees this threat of Israel and Ephraim coming at him and the Assyrians looming outside. And so all he saw was bad in the midst of that. God still had a plan. So there's no reason to be an Eeyore. Life lesson number two that we learned from King Ahaz. Piety and faith aren't the same things. Piety and faith are two different things. What's piety? I would describe piety as being like the acts of spirituality that we do. So these acts of spirituality aren't the same as being faithful. I'll show you what I mean. As we continue, uh, going back into the the text, um, we see this threat coming And in verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God says in verse 9, Hey, you don't have to worry about those guys coming against you. Don't worry about that at all. I'll take care of them. You don't have to fear them at all. That's not even a concern of yours. And then God said, You know what? This is my promise to you, but you can even ask for a sign that what I am saying is actually going to come about. And God said, you can ask for anything that you want. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. It's deep as Sheol, which is kind of the Israelite Hebrew concept of hell at the time. So it can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, it can be as crazy as you want it to be. Ask for anything as a sign that I am going to take care of you in the midst of this. Ask anything you want. And then here's what Ahaz says. Check this out. Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I... I'm really spiritual. I will not test the Lord. 
What he wanted to do in that moment was appear really spiritual by leaning on something that was written in the Old Testament law, which was do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he wanted to appear spiritual when in reality he wasn't living in faith. Because he, he lacked the faith to do what God asked him to do because he was afraid that God would not do what God had promised him that he would do. So he wanted to sound and look really spiritual when in reality he was afraid to live out his faith. See, piety, acts of piety and faith are not necessarily the same thing. Now, let me, I want you to think about this. If I were to ask you, how do you know that you're living a life of faith? Like, what are the things that are characteristic of your life if you are living a life of faith? Or maybe even, like, what are you, how, what's the evidence in your life? What are the things that you do that help you to know you're living a life of faith? I think naturally, your response might be, well, Okay, I would know I'm living a life of faith if I am reading my Bible, praying, going to church, serving, giving, all of that stuff. Right? I know I'm living a life of faith when I'm showing up at church, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm praying, when I'm serving, when I'm living on mission, when I'm doing all of that stuff. What's interesting, though, is that is not at all how the Bible describes a life of faith. Now, should we be doing those things, those acts of piety? Absolutely. They're really good. But those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily evidences that we're living a life of faith. So we read this in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is the evidence that God is at work in our lives. It does not say the fruit of the Spirit is reading your Bible, praying, going to church, giving, and serving. It doesn't say that. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and kindness. So the evidence that you're actually living a life of faith is not so much the things that you do, it's actually character transformation. Like that your character is transformed so that you're beginning to live a lot more like Jesus lived in your attitudes. It's not just about the things that you do. But so often as I have conversations with people, I find that we end up doing the acts of piety thinking that that's good enough. Like if I just do those things, these things that make me look spiritual, then God's going to take care of everything else. Bill, I don't understand. I've been praying about my marriage for a long time, and God doesn't seem to fix anything in my marriage. And I think to myself, well, man, like, I don't know. Maybe you still have an anger problem. You're being a jerk to your spouse. Like, fix that. Ask God to fix that in you and then trust that he's going to take care of your marriage. Bill, I don't understand. I, I, I've been praying about this a lot. And you know what? Even like Sometimes I even give at, at times you know, to make sure God knows I'm really serious about this. But I've been praying about our, our financial circumstances. And God doesn't even... Doesn't, necessarily seem to do anything about it like does he even care and I think to myself well I mean maybe you should stop being a disrespectful employee who goes around pointing out all of the things that are wrong all the time acting like you're the smartest person there and just work hard and as you work hard you trust that God's going to meet every need that you have 
right? Because that's what living a life of faith is. It's trusting God to transform us so that we're living out all of those things that are the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and trust God to, to do a work around us as we are concentrated on those things. Bill, I don't understand. I, I go to church every, well, maybe not every Sunday, like, but most, well, I mean, I show up every once in a while on Sunday, but my life is filled with a trail of broken relationships. Why does nothing ever seem to work out for me? Like, what are you doing on Friday and Saturday? Maybe that's why. Maybe you're taking the shortcut, choosing the least worst option, rather than trusting God and living a life of faith, seeking after him to change your life and then to bring that person into your life that he has for you. But it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I just do the right things, then God's going to take care of it. When in reality, what God wants to do in us, as we're doing those things, like we concentrate on the transformation of our hearts, and that's what living the life of faith is all about. First life lesson, you don't have to be an Eeyore. There's still something that's happening. God, don't shortcut God's plan. The second thing is uh, that piety and faith are not the same thing. And then the, the third life lesson that we learned from Ahaz is all about anticipation. The reason for anticipating, even when all that we see around us is bad, is because God is with us. I, I think this is, it's kind of funny to me, actually. So Ahaz says, Verse 12, I will not ask, I'm not going to test the Lord. And then Isaiah says, gosh, like this is, this is exhausting talking to you. If you test the patience of men, are you also going to test the patience of God? Okay, here's what God's going to do. He is going to still give you a sign. You won't ask for it, he's going to give you one anyway. And then we read this in verse 14. The virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. So Isaiah said, listen, Ahaz, in spite of your lack of faith, God's still going to give you a sign. And it is that God is with us. Now I've got to tell you something about Old Testament prophecy, especially prophecy, Messianic prophecy, or prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Something really interesting that happens, that it can have two separate fulfillments. There can be a fulfillment in the life of the person who's being talked to, in this case, in Ahaz, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so when Ahaz hears this message from Isaiah, the virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. Here's what Isaiah is saying. Hey, a young woman of marriageable age is getting ready to have a baby. And before that baby is old enough to understand right from wrong, you won't have to worry about those guys anymore because God's still got a plan. He knows what he's doing. He's going to protect you. And in all of this, you will know God is with you. It was an incredible promise given to Ahaz that gave him so much hope. That promise given to Ahaz, it doesn't do that much for us, though. But the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be Emmanuel, which is God with us, points to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And that's what anticipation is all about, right? That's this season. We anticipate the coming of the birth of Jesus who came and lived on this earth to rescue us from our sin so that we can have a relationship with God. That's a reason for anticipation. But our, the reason for anticipation is even more than that because it's not just that God came to be with us at some point in the past, 
But we still believe that God is still with us today. And that's the reason for anticipating something good happening. Like when we look out and we're in one of those seasons when everything that we see is bad, we still have hope and can anticipate God doing something in our lives because God is still with us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Nothing will separate us from God's love. And so I don't know where you're at right now. But you can be in one of those seasons where you look up and all you see is bad. And maybe you're not thinking, how do I anticipate something good coming? But you're in that season of how do I survive? Don't give up hope. Because God still loves you and he is still with you and God still has a plan for you. And that's the reason for us to anticipate something good coming. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in those moments of our lives where all we see is bad, renew in us a sense of anticipation for what you can do. Help us to be able to see how you are at work in our lives around us even now. Help us to not be afraid where we shortcut what you want to do, but help us to lean in and continue to trust in you and trust your plan. Thanks for your love. Thanks for the promise about your love that we know nothing separates us from that. And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us. Help us to not be satisfied to do the acts of spirituality, but God, may we be faithful, trusting that you are transforming our hearts and our lives. May we see your goodness at work and anticipate something better coming. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.